Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So today we're launching into a new sermon series, and I am actually oddly very excited about it. I love to preach on sin. I don't know what that says about me, strange guy in many ways, but I I love to preach on sin because it is a topic of universal relevance. When you speak on sin, everybody in the room feels it. We sense it, and in a way, every sermon is about sin, right? That is the problem with our world, all that is wrong with our world, can be defined in this term, sin. And it's important to talk about sin. As you've heard me say before, it's a very big deal. Uh, we all struggle with it. And as I'll argue through this passage, it's something that we continue to struggle with even after we are believers. And I believe that in order to truly understand how amazing the gospel is, the good news, the power of a received righteousness that we don't deserve. In order to truly understand that and to truly appreciate the goodness of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news first. Because otherwise we don't realize how desperate we are. We think that we just need a little bit of help. We have to understand how depraved we are, how sinful we are. We have to understand the depths of our sin in order to truly appreciate the amazing gift of the gospel for us. So we're going to talk about sin. This week is the intro. We're going to start with the specific seven sins next week. And we're going to talk not just uh, about sin in general, but these seven big nasties that have become known over time as the seven deadly sins. And don't worry, you will find yourself in all seven of them, okay? This is not like a choose-your-own-adventure. This is all of them affect you whether you realize it or not. These are big sins that we all struggle with. So fasten your seatbelts, friends. We might experience a little turbulence along the way, but at every leg of our journey, we will, we will find uh, the runways of grace to land upon and uh, find good news in the midst of this hard reality of sin. So today I want to set up our series. I want to give us a kind of lens and approach to these sins. And it's been said that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. In the American church, my experience personally and through reading and through listening has been that we primarily view our Christian discipleship as an academic project, as a didactic Endeavor. Now, don't get me wrong, it is that, but I think that we have perhaps too strong of a bias in that direction. We think in terms of our discipleship as just acquiring the right knowledge. And we think that if we could just listen to enough sermons, if we could get, just get enough people in Bible studies and in classes, and we could just get people the right information and the right content, that it would solve our problems. But it doesn't. As we've just read this morning, there's this battle and there's this struggle. 
And the truth is, there is a gap. There's a massive gap between the things that we know to do and the things that we actually do. Anybody in the house this morning jamming with me? There is a mass, thank you, there is a massive gap between our knowledge, between knowing the truth, between knowing God's ways and putting them into practice. And in the middle of that gap is our hearts, our desires, which have been dis oriented, which have been thrown off, which are disordered. And so what if our Christian discipleship is not just about acquiring and transferring knowledge? What if we made the mistake of thinking that we're just brains on a stick and that, and that all it is and that whatever we think, therefore we are? That is, that is our tradition. That is what has been handed down to us. And I I would imagine that many of us have that bias and we don't even realize it. Now hear me out here. I'm not talking about anti-intellectualism. We've had plenty of that. It's not about not needing knowledge, but it's about wisdom. It's about truly putting that into practice. I'm saying that content is not the only fix. And if we think that that's the problem, then we're just going to double down or triple down on that approach. And it's like, okay, I just need to listen to one more thing. I just need to get more. And I'd like to make the case through this series that maybe the gap for many of us exists in our hearts. Our brains and hearts are connected. They're intertwined. But I think that it's helpful to have this corrective in our approach. Now, I know that we have a massive biblical illiteracy problem. We're in a post-Christian time. Many people don't know their Bibles well. Again, I'm not arguing against that. We're doing a whole push to go through the Bible this year. Okay, Even among church-going Christians, there is a content gap. There is an information gap. Um, even among people like yourselves that still show up for church, which, by the way, that's pretty amazing because, you know, going to church is so 1990. I mean, I don't know if you realize, I'm, you guys just keep showing up. You don't realize going to church is not cool anymore? Like, that's not what people are doing. So, grateful that you're here. But we can make the mistake of thinking that our problem will be solved just by content, just by more study. And so I want to convince you through this series that it's more than just the mind. It's the condition of our hearts. I want to give you a little sampler platter of Scripture as we sort of ease into this topic just to prove to you that Scripture makes this case as well. Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We are desiring creatures. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Very common advice. Just follow your heart. Now, there are times that we can be intuitive, that we can make decisions that we, at the heart level, but, but to say just follow your heart as a general blanket statement, that's actually not very good advice because, again, our hearts are disordered. We love the wrong things. We love good things, but we love them too much. We love good things, but we love them in the wrong way. Sometimes our problem is that we love things too little. You can make the case that all of our sin is the result of loving God too little. Our hearts are disordered. Jesus makes the case 
He's in an argument about ceremonial cleansing and what makes a person clean or unclean. And he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality and theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these come from inside and defile a person. Does that list look familiar? It's very close to what we've landed on. It's one of the lists in the Bibles. Uh, In the Bible, there's not more than one Bible, by the way. In the Bible, but there are multiple lists of sins, and we've sort of mashed them together to create these big seven that we're going to be talking about. So I think Scripture makes the case that our hearts are important, that we need to not just focus on our minds and our thoughts, but pay attention to the gap between our minds and our hearts so that these truths get down deep within us and they shape us within our hearts. So I have a book that I want to commend to you. I know I'm always recommending books, uh, but this one is really important. I mean, this book would, would certainly make my top 25 of personal books that have impacted my discipleship. It's called You Are What You Love. It's by James K.A. Smith. And it is excellent. The subtitle is The Spiritual Power of Habit, if you're not able to read that. And I would say this book is largely responsible for my approach to this sermon series on the seven deadly sins. If you're able to get it soon, at least read the first chapter or two, because it really sets up where we're going here. And in the book, he puts out this question. He says that Jesus, in a variety of different ways throughout the gospel narratives, asks a very profound question that we don't often pay attention to. And the question is, what do you want? What do you want? Isn't that an interesting question that Jesus poses? And that's, that's different than what do you know? It's different than what do you believe? They're related, but it's a different question. He asks, what do you want? And in that, I think he acknowledges that, we, that we're desiring creatures not just about what we know, but it is about what we want deep inside of us. And James writes this, he says, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our action and behavior flows. Our wants reverberate from the heart, the epicenter of the human person. He challenges us that Jesus doesn't just want to inform our intellect. He wants to form our loves. He's not just trying to deposit content into people's brains. But he wants nothing less than their desires, than their wants, and their longings. And then he writes this. To be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life. Some picture of what we think counts as human flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. We are oriented by our longings and directed by our desires. We're desiring creatures. And within us, we have some kind of vision of what the good life is. There's actually lots of different visions. And that vision, a distortion of that reality, is what leads us ultimately to sin. It comes from our heart. And again, sometimes those are are good things, right? If you think about lust, you think about that desire there. Well, underneath that, there's, there's a good and healthy and holy desire. 
But when we desire it in the wrong context, in the wrong place, it gets disordered. And so that's what's tricky about all of these sins, is that we have to unravel what are the good and holy desires that are underneath those things that have been disoriented, that have been thrown off. Because sometimes we, as Christians, we can think, well, you know, our emotions and our desires are bad. I hear that from people. That's not true. God created us to be desiring people. It's just that, just like our brains and our knowledge, our hearts and our desires and our emotions have been affected by the fall. So we don't throw them out. We ask God to redeem them. And that's a part of what this series is about, is reorienting our hearts to the right desires and the right kinds of loves. So we all experience this gap between what we know and what we do. And what I love is that the Apostle Paul, in this letter to the church at Rome that many of us may be familiar with, right in the middle in the heart of this letter, he just puts all his cards on the table. And he says, I'm right there with you. In my own struggle, my own journey, there are still things that I want to do and I'm not doing them. And there's things that I don't want to do that I do. Now that's my approach. You may not be aware of this debate, but this passage, people actually argue about whether this battle is describing a believer or a non-believer. And there's some case to be made on both sides of it. Ultimately, I've choose, chosen to side, as I do on many issues, with the former Protestant Pope, Tim Keller. Uh, and in his commentary, he makes a good case that this passage is describing the believer's experience. And I know, for me personally, I can see myself in this struggle. We're no longer slaves to sin. Our identity has changed. But even in Christ, we find that there are these, this war, this war is going on for our hearts. Our hearts are being tugged in different directions. And all throughout our day, we're being pulled. Our hearts are being pulled in different directions. And it's exhausting, isn't it? Because we're facing this battle. And somehow in the wisdom of God, that's the way he created it. He created it so that we're justified, but our sanctification will be ongoing. And one day, thanks be to God, one day we'll be fully glorified. That means we're going to be fully reflecting Jesus. We're going to be like him. I'm ready for that. But in the meantime, we're still living in this world where we face the struggles. We face the world and the flesh and the devil in this battle with our sinful nature that is still there this struggle to do the right, to choose the high road, to choose to pursue the vision of human flourishing according to the way God defines it and not our own choosing or our own vision of what the good life should look like. We have an environment around us that influences us. Sometimes we place too much blame there. You know, well, it's just all this crazy world we're living in. That's why things are the way. That's why I am the way I am. Well, your environment's part of it, but it's not the only thing. You also have a real enemy, the devil. He's real. He's not equal with God, but he does have some power under the sovereignty of God. Again, I don't know why God did it that way. I can't explain that, but that's what the book tells us. And he's real, and he tries to deceive us and distort the truth of God in very tricky ways, and he is our enemy. 
And he's involved in tempting you to sin. And the third component is your flesh, of course. And just in case you weren't aware, you are always involved when you sin. Fair enough? Let's take responsibility for that. It's a struggle. So I appreciate Paul's vulnerability here as he wrestles through this. Now he begins with the law. This is what I would think of as the head knowledge. And he says the law is good. It's helpful. The law defines sin for us. The law reveals sin to us. The law is like a tutor, he says in the book of Galatians, pointing us toward faith. In James 1, he says the law is like a mirror, holding it up, showing us who we really are. We wouldn't know what sin was without the law. But is knowing the law enough to transform us? It's not. In fact, he goes on to argue that the problem is because of our sinful nature, the law can actually aggravate or provoke us to sin. In other words, knowing the thing that you shouldn't do because of your messed up, distorted distorted heart, knowing the good actually sometimes causes you to want to do the very thing that you're not supposed to do. We see this at play with little children, don't we? You tell them not to touch the hot thing, the stove, the pan, the rice cooker. That was last week. You tell them not to touch the hot thing, and what do they do? They touch it because they want to assert their autonomy, because they're curious. Whatever reason it is, they do it. Unfortunately, we don't always grow out of that, do we? You tell a man he can't do something, and he will kill himself trying to do it, just to prove that he can There's something about our hearts that is rebellious that we just, we want to do those things. Even when we know the consequences of them. And so our sinful hearts take a good thing like the law. And yes, we should. We should still tell our kids not to do those things. Even though some of it they have to learn for themselves. We should still know the law, but knowing the law is not enough. The law cannot save you. The law cannot transform your heart. You need to know it but there's still a gap. And so we see the struggle that Paul unfolds, starting in verse 15, and the struggle is real. He says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. That's us, every day. That's the gap. It's the perennial human struggle. Paul says he delights in God's word, and yet he is still tempted. At times he gives in, but he doesn't resign himself. He actively engages in the battle that he elsewhere describes as living according to the Spirit versus living according to the flesh. Here's the thing, believer, whatever your sin struggle struggles are, plural, don't give up the battle. Right? That's, that's the point where you get to the point of discouragement when you think I could never live without this when you think I'll never change. Don't give up the battle. We have to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the work of Christ applied to us, that we can change. Without God's grace, the truth is you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? It's hard to change. But by the grace of God, we can change, and we are being changed. And it's a slow process, and sometimes it feels like two steps forward, three steps backward is a messy process, this sanctification. But don't give up the battle. Don't resign yourself to these struggles. 
because of our conversion, we can see the value of God's law. We can agree that it's good. We can have the desire to keep it. And yet we still have this war waging within us. The struggle we all face is that we have divergent desires. It's almost like there are different selves. And some days we wake up and we wonder which self it is that got out of bed that morning. Is it the one that wants to follow God's law? Is it the one that wants to live by the power of the Spirit? Or is it the one that just wants to live for him or herself? Who got up today? It's a really a question of identity. And the question could be postured a number of ways, but it's really all the same question. Which is my true self? Which is the good self? Which is the real self? The right self? The beautiful self? What's my real identity? And I love the way that Keller states this so concisely. He says, for a Christian, that question is settled. The question is settled. Who are you? If you are in Christ, the question of your identity is settled. You are a child of God. The old is gone. The new is here. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are, you are saved and being saved by the grace of God. You are a child of God. You are in union with Christ. The question is settled, although the conflict isn't. That's the tricky part. The conflict that we live with ourselves each and every day as we face thousands and thousands of decisions. You didn't even realize it. You're, you're, you're making thousands of decisions every day. And many of those are just, your response is habitual. You're just living the way you've lived before. You're doing these things without even realizing them. Which is why, as James Smith argues, there's so much power in habit. We have to habit ourselves in the right direction with the right practices that reorient our hearts toward the right vision of human flourishing. Because we make lots of decisions intentionally, but you make lots of decisions in your life without even realizing it. You make a decision out of the kind of person that you are, the kind of person that you're becoming. We call those things virtues as opposed to vices. Virtues are simply habits, practices. So we're going to talk about this as we continue to go through this series of of taking up habits and practices that will shape the heart. The challenge and comfort here is that no one matures past sin or is beyond the struggle and influence of sin. In fact, the more spiritually mature and discerning we become, the more we will see sin more clearly in our hearts. I don't know if this is your experience, but often the times when I feel like I'm not becoming a better Christian, not earning God's love, but when I feel like I'm really pursuing Christ and I'm more dialed in, I actually feel less holy in those seasons. You'd think you'd feel more holy, right? But spiritual maturity actually brings you to a place where you see your own sinfulness more clearly. So it's a weird opposite effect. The more that you pursue him and you see things clearly, the more you realize how deeply sinful you still are. And here's the comfort. We're comforted in knowing that we can be struggling with sin and still growing in Christ. We can be struggling with sin and still growing in Christ. 
never giving up the battle, not using grace as a license to sin. But the presence of sin in your life doesn't mean that you are condemned. It doesn't mean that Christ is not still working in your life. So don't give up. Don't be discouraged. And what's the ultimate cure for all of this? What's the hope for us? Toward the end of this passage, Paul writes this. Two things, two thoughts. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. These are two realities that we need to face every day when we wake up. The depth of your sin and the heights of God's grace. The first, first thing when you begin your day is that you need to be reminded how deeply sinful and broken and needy you are. Pastor, that doesn't sound like a good way to start my day. It actually it is. Oddly enough, because you need to face that in order to face the incredible beauty and the heights of God's grace in the gospel. You need to recognize that you are without hope except for deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a great way to start your day. God, what a wretched person I am. But thanks be to God, you have redeemed me. You are saving me. I'm no longer the person I am, and now that there is power available to become a new person in Jesus Christ. That is the cure for us. It's not a logical solution to a problem. It is a cure. It is a remedy. It is medicine for a sick heart, and it's the only cure. How are we transformed in this struggle? It's not less truth. It's truth applied. That is where wisdom comes into place. It's truth that informs our actions, but it's also choosing actions that help shape our loves. I think many times we think, you know, I just don't have the desire to do that. Well, if you wait around for the desire to do the good things, sometimes you'll never get there. Sometimes we need to do those practices and habits that will shape and challenge our heart even when we don't feel it, even when we don't have the desire to do it. Knowing that our very practices and our habits can then generate that desire and it can work in the right direction. We need to attend to our loves. Because you are what you love. You may not quite understand what that phrase means yet, but I hope by the end of this series we'll understand that better as we unpack our disordered desires that result in these seven deadly sins. That we will take sin seriously, but we will take grace seriously. We need liturgy. We need worship. We need habits to reorient our love and untangle the disordered desires of our hearts kind of like Christmas lights at the beginning of the season. They're all tangled up. It's a mess somehow, magically. No matter how we put them away, they're tangled up. This is our hearts. They're tangled up. And we need God to untangle them for us and reorient our lives and our desires to be in tune with the heart of Jesus Christ. This is the journey we're going to go on together as we look at these sins. Will you join me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, for the testimony 
of Paul. That we're all like him. That we all find this gap between what we know and what we do. God, our desires toward things that will rob us of true life are too strong and our desire toward the good things that you've called us to are too weak. God, would you reshape our hearts? That we would love you more. That we would love you with all that we are. You would teach us to love our neighbors, to love our community. God, I pray that you would bring conviction and comfort from your Holy Spirit to bring real change to my brothers and sisters. That as we consider these sins, God, that you would bring a freedom that only you can bring. God, that you would fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit to become the people that you have called us to be. Lord, it is for freedom that you have set us free. So God, help us to walk in that way, to find the freedom, to find the vision of a beautiful life that you have called us to. God, help us to develop habits and practices including habits of accountability and community with other believers so we can share these struggles and we can call one another, encourage one another, and lift one another up as we pursue you together as your people to become the people that you've called us to. God, be in our fellowship after service. May it be rich and satisfying. God, fill our hearts with joy as we're together. We love you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.